Great. Well, um, let's get started. Thanks to everyone for coming, and welcome to the Institute for Government. Um, we're really pleased to have such a great turnout today, and hopefully um, this will be a really useful and informative um, event on how to start a career in public policy. Um, I'm James. I'm one of the interns here, um, and I just have a couple of housekeeping points that we need to cover before we get going. Um, so firstly, if you hear a fire alarm, um, it will be a real alarm, so please um, leave the building via the main exit and assemble on the right-hand side of the square by the statues. Um, the event is being live-streamed, so hello to everyone on the live-stream, and please bear in mind that we are on the record. Um, and thirdly and finally, um, we have a Wi-Fi network, which you are able to join if you want to um, surf the internet during the event. Um, and in particular, we're using the uh, hashtag IFGintern um, if you want to engage with us on Twitter or um, tweet anything about um, what you hear today. So thanks, and I'm going to pass over to Hannah White, who is our Deputy Director, to welcome. Thank you very much, James. So I'm sorry for the uh, billing that you're going to get Bronwyn, our Director, to introduce today, but um, unfortunately she can't be here, so uh, you've got me. So welcome, everyone. Uh, thank you very much for coming, and congratulations for being sensible enough to consider starting your public uh, policy career at a think tank, which, being a little bit biased, I think is obviously an excellent thing to be considering. Um, so I just want to say a very little bit uh, to kick off about why I think think tanks are important um, and what I think uh, you might gain from starting a career uh, somewhere like IFG. So uh, I don't know where you're working now, whether you're at university or what your experience is, but before I came to IFG, I worked in, in the House of Commons in Parliament, um, and a lot of my uh, colleagues here at the IFG worked in government. And the thing about government, the thing about Parliament, is it's very, very busy with the day-to-day. -day. There is not a lot of capacity to step back and think and reflect and to come up with new ideas. And think tanks are a really important part of the ecosystem, the policy ecosystem, because they have the space and the capacity and the people who are able to, to sort of step back and, and think and reflect. And that was what I really found when I came here from Parliament there, my head had been down, I'd been doing the day-to-day, -day, I'd been delivering, I'd been very tactical. And it was a real um, wonderful experience, actually, to come here and have the time to, to stop and to think about what I'd been doing and to reflect. And it wasn't that I didn't want to do it when I was working in Parliament, it was just that I didn't have the capacity and the space to do it. So I think think tanks are a really um, interesting uh, space in which that can happen. And at the moment, um, this is even more the case. So particularly in government, the thing that we think about, um, there is just zero capacity to do anything other than Brexit. Um, all the other things that government might like to be doing in the normal way of things, the normal way of things, coming up with new ideas and so on, are being completely squeezed out by Brexit. And so having places like the IFG thinking both about Brexit, hi Emily, <laughs> and our final panellist, <laughs> um, and all about all the other things that government ought to be doing at the moment is, is ever more important. Um, and I think the second thing is that think tanks are a sort of important transmission mechanism. So you've got uh, lots of academics and people thinking, you've got lots of experts who have very specialist knowledge. But what think tanks are good at is think coming up with practical, workable ideas, things that policymakers actually might be able to pick up and run with. And that's also a really nice thing about think, being in a think tank. It's the opportunity to think, well, how would this actually work in practice? And have the engagement with the people who are working in government and doing public policy, that you can understand that and that you can see their perspective and see where they're coming from. So 
personally, again, I started my career in academia, but I was pretty clear quite quickly, having done a PhD, that I didn't want to be an academic. And that was partly because I just felt too detached um, from the real world, even though I was, in theory, doing a PhD that was quite sort of applied. And then the third thing is I think think tanks at the moment are a really important counterweight to the sort of famous phrase that one of the conservative leadership candidates used that, you know, we've all had enough of experts. Well, actually, um, you know, he may be our, our prime minister soon, but actually I think one of the important things that we do at the Institute is bring evidence, evidence into the debate. And in a world where, you know, people talk about alternative facts and so on, particularly in relation to Brexit, what the Institute's been able to do is bring some sort of some actual uh, sort of cold, hard um, analysis into the debate, which has really helped inform the commentary at the journalism, but also politicians and, and help people understand what the debate's about. Um, personally, I had that experience recently trying to talk um, on the radio about why I thought Dominic Raab was wrong to talk about proroguing Parliament um, and actually talking about the mechanism uh, that how that would happen and what would have to happen and what the alternatives were and what Parliament might like to do. You know, politicians are quite good at throwing out ideas, but actually people like the RFG can say, well, actually, how would that work in practice and, and is that really realistic? <coughs> now, having said, you know, think tanks are a great place and you should definitely want to work in think tanks, we're also conscious that we're not getting everything right. Um, and particularly, you know, in terms of us at, at the RFG, um, one aspect that we are really thinking about a lot and trying to work on is our diversity. We have um, a relatively good story to talk about in terms of gender diversity, um, but in terms of other diversity, we're really conscious that we're not very diverse. Um, we think it's really important to be diverse in order to bring in lots of different ideas and perspectives and be more uh, innovative in our thinking. And we see our internship program as a really important mechanism in order to, to do that. So that is something that, you know, we're really interested in talking to people like you about and, and getting you involved in order to do that. We also would like to do more in terms of learning from the experience of other countries. Um, we, we do this in relation to some of our research projects, but it tends to be relatively ad hoc. Um, but again, internships are a really brilliant way for us to bring in experienced people from other countries or you know, just people who have lived in a, in a different government system. And it's really important to emphasize that you don't need to know about UK government in order to come and be an intern here, but you do need to be interested in government as a concept. Um, so these are a couple of things that we're trying to work on and which we really would like our internship program to, to help us with. Um, but there's also a question, obviously, in your minds about why you would want to, to start working here. Um, and so why this is a good place to think about starting your career, as I said, Working in a think tank provides a unique opportunity, I think, to, do, to reflect, to do research, to come up with ideas, but also then to see impact from that, to think actually that those ideas that you're coming up with and spending time on, the research you're spending time on, might actually change things in government. And for me, and for I know a lot of the people who work at the IFG, that's a really important reason to work here. Another good thing about starting with an internship at the IFG is the overview it gives you of the government system in the UK. Um, we're very well uh, sort of engaged with Whitehall, with Parliament, and with the sort of wider public sector. And if you're thinking you might want to work in public policy somewhere, starting somewhere that can give you that sort of overview um, and, and contact with a, a sort of wide scope of the public sector, I think is a really sensible thing to think about. Um, we have uh, a wide range of staff with different experience. So just, I think, again, and the others can, can reflect on whether they agree with this, but 
people come from lots of different places and just the conversations you can have as an intern, not necessarily connected with your research, but with all the different people who work here, will give you ideas and thoughts about things you might want to do in the future and also help you build your network, which is going to be really important. And we offer the opportunity to work on lots of different things and to build skills. Um, Gavin can talk about, um, he's our sort of lead data and uh, sort of data visualization, amongst other, many other things, um, expert. And lots of people who come here haven't particularly worked on quantitative data very much in the past, but by the time they finish working with Gavin, really know a lot about it. <laughs> um, and then finally, I just say, you know, Gavin is a really brilliant place to be if you're interested in politics. You have a real ringside seat and what's going on. Um, since I've been here, I joined in 2014, I've seen two elections, two referendums, you know, actually sitting with a bunch of really interesting, engaged people watching the outcome of the Conservative leadership election is just a lot of fun. So I would definitely recommend it from that point of view. So obviously a very biased picture, but I just wanted to sort of welcome you all and say uh, that I think, you know, you've made the right choice by being here and hopefully lots of you at the end of today will think about applying for an internship. I'm afraid I have to zoom off, but great to meet you. Thanks to Hannah for uh, a great introduction. Um, we're now going to hear from Gavin Freegard, who is our program director and head of data and transparency, and he's going to be talking about uh, what the IFG does and also what a think tank is. Um, so yes, I'm Gavin, um, hello and welcome. Um, I'm a program director here, which means that I'm part of the senior team, but also I'm responsible for particular areas of work. You might have had a clue from what Hannah said and from what it said up there, what one of those bits of work might be. Um, I hope you're all enjoying the British summertime as much as I am, but have a better umbrella than I did as I ran over from Whitehall earlier. Um, before I tell you um, a bit more about the Institute and where we sort of fit into the wider think tank landscape and indeed answer the question, what is a think tank? Um, I thought it would be helpful just to give you a quick potted biography of how I came to be here, because I've spent my entire career in very different bits of public policy. Um, I'm originally from this place. Uh, this is Port Talbot in South Wales. Um, you might have seen this on the news, usually when something's gone badly wrong in the steelworks, um, or when people are looking to talk to people about why they voted to leave the European Union. Um, <laughs> um, I then did a degree in history and politics. And straight out of university, I joined a think and do tank I'll come back to that in a second, um, called the Media Standards Trust. Now, it'll shock you to learn that the Media Standards Trust works on media policy. Um, and we did a lot of thinking about press regulation, about the future of the press. Media policy is a very strange area because most of the recommendations you're making are about the press or about broadcasters, and of course, they're the ones who communicate all of that with the public, or choose not to if they don't like what it is you're saying. Um, but as well as doing lots of, sort of research and we tried to do things as well, hence the think and do tank bit. Uh, that involved building websites to help the public hold journalists more accountable, uh, to help news organisations try to navigate their way through the online world. It's funny to think back in 2008, Facebook had only been around for about two years, I think, so people were really still getting to grips with what social media actually meant for news. Um, and one of the other big things they did is to do with that gentleman there. Anybody know who that is? George Orwell, very good. Um, so one of the main projects in the Media Standards Trust was running the Orwell Prize for political writing. Um, so quite a different range of things to do with public policy, lots of research, trying to build tools for the public and for the press, but also trying to encourage people to think and talk about political ideas and highlighting interesting works of political journalism and political writing through a prize. 
And after that, I then joined the dark side. I went into politics. Um, I worked for the Labour Party on press policy and various other things. Uh, for this lady, anybody know who that is? Harriet Harman. Um, so Harriet Harman was at that point the Shadow Secretary of State for Culture, Media and Sport. So Hannah described what it's like to work in Parliament, head down all the time, things happening all the time. You haven't got any space whatsoever to sort of step back and think about anything. Um, so that was sort of looking at public policy from actually having to develop party policy for the Labour Party. In fact, taking part in a lot of cross-party talks on sort of press and media policy with the Liberal Democrats and the Conservatives and with government. So quite an odd perspective. Um, but after about a year and a half of that, I was exhausted and completely worn out. Um, and that's when I decided to come to the wonderful Institute for Government. Um, so here at the Institute, I'm now a Programme Director for a couple of things. Uh, digital government, here is the obligatory slide of a robot. Um, lots of people are getting very excited at the moment about artificial intelligence and robotics and automation and blockchain and various other technologies which sound like they've been made up. Um, and we're actually trying to sort of cut a much more sensible path through what that actually means for government, how we can make the most of it and, and how it sort of uh, balances the challenges. Uh, but also data, obligatory slide. If you talk about data, you have to have a screen with ones and zeros on it behind you. Um, most of what we do is actually much more interesting than that. We have a lot of big data analysis projects um, which take numbers and try to make sense of what government looks like, what public services look like, and what parliament looks like, and how they're performing. Um, Emily uh, worked and led our performance tracker project, which does that for public services. Lee will talk shortly about Whitehall Monitor, which um, is our sort of data viz project on central government. Just to give you a flavour, and I think you might be seeing this chart again uh, fairly shortly, um, this has been one of our big hits recently. So lots of people in the press were talking about, oh, Theresa May's losing loads of ministers. And they were all scrabbling around to try and put a number on that. So obviously we decided that we would try and find the numbers. Um, this is showing you how many uh, ministers, prime ministers, have lost since 1979. You can see that Blair over about 10 years lost nearly 30, Thatcher, that sort of light blue line, over nearly 11 years, and um, also lost around 25. Uh, let me put Theresa May in. There we are. Um, she's lost 35 in less than three years. So you can see that that's actually sort of quite an extraordinary rate. And we were trying to put numbers to that and also trying to communicate it in a visually interesting way. Um, it's been used in loads of places, the Financial Times, the BBC, the Guardian, but I think the one that we're proudest of is this. <laughs> There's a graph in front of the BBC. A graph on a comedy show? This is, not the <laughs> <laughs> this is a graph of ministerial resignations before Theresa May, and here it is with Theresa May on it. <laughs> I loved Ian Hislop's surprise that graphs could be entertaining. <laughs> um, obviously, here at the Institute, they always are. Um, so, what is the Institute for Government, and what do we do? Well, um, as you can see from this slide, we're currently celebrating our 10th anniversary a big party last week and lots of interesting events. Um, we are the UK's leading think tank working to make government more effective. Now, as we'll see in a moment, we're quite different from a lot of other think tanks in the UK. They tend to focus on particular policy areas. We're much more interested in how you put those policies into practice, how you organise government to actually get stuff done. Um, and we'll talk a lot more about that. Um, it's very important to us that we're independent and impartial. We're not on the left, we're not on the right. Um, we're sort of here to uh, recommend things to government, to opposition, to all political parties. We work with civil servants and with politicians from, from all sides. And it's really important to our reputation and to actually be able to get things done that we are as impartial and independent as possible. 
So what is it that we, and I should say as well, our funding, um, about 85% of our funding comes from a charitable foundation called the Gatsby Foundation, uh, set up by Lord David Sainsbury, who uh, was a science minister in the Blair government and thought the government could work a little bit better and decided to, to endow an institute uh, to do something about that. So that's how we come to be here. Um, we also take money from um, other research councils, from other charitable foundations, and also on sort of project-by-project basis um, from other sponsors. You'll find a lot of think tanks aren't as lucky as we are, and they actually have to sort of pitch for work um, a lot more, um, which might affect the work that they do, but we can come on to that later. So what is it that we actually do here at the Institute? Well, we publish lots of research and commentary. And if you've thought about think tanks or encountered think tanks, you've probably encountered all of the reports that they do. And to give you a sense of some of the projects and some of the things that we're researching and publishing reports on at the moment, um, that does, of course, include Brexit. It will not surprise you to hear. Um, we haven't got a position on Brexit, but what we look at is where the government is prepared and how it's actually approaching um, all the sort of negotiations and having to legislate to be ready, whatever it is that actually happens at some point in the undefined near or far future. Um, we've also got our big sort of data projects, which try to make sense of what government looks like and how it's performing. Um, we've got a wonderful project called Ministers Reflect, um, which publishes uh, interviews with people who've served in government. And it turns out they want to be quite honest when they get out, and they've got a lot of interesting things to say. Uh, we've got a big project on outsourcing and how governments sort of contracts with uh, third parties outside government to deliver public services. We've done loads of things down the years on policy making. Um, I don't know if any of you have heard of sort of nudge and behavioural insights and behavioural economics. Um, that was a, a lot of that in the UK came from a report we published back in 2009, I think, something like that. Um, and as you've seen, we've also do, do a lot on sort of digital governance at the moment. So loads of things. It's not just about big research reports, which can be quite useful for putting your foot in the door in a particular policy area or giving a long, considered view. And um, we're also quite reactive in putting what we think out into the public domain in reaction to things as and when they happen. And to take quite an important recent example of that, Hannah was talking about all of these discussions about what happened with Parliament during Brexit. Um, a couple of posts on our website about that have been cited by loads of news outlets, but also Conservative Party leadership contenders about how easy it would be for Parliament to block no deal and things like that. We also hold lots of public events. Um, we've got a wonderful event space, I hope you agree. Um, and just to give you a flavour of some of the things that we've done in recent weeks, um, we had a keynote speech from the UK Cabinet Secretary, that's the UK's most uh, senior civil servant. We had the senior minister from the Singaporean government uh, talking about how his government approaches things. We've had a number of panel discussions on everything from outsourcing to Brexit. Um, we've even had um, an event called Data Bytes, where we had people doing interesting things with data in government, uh, presenting for eight minutes. And yes, we do have a timer on the stage to make sure they stick to it. So again, that's to get people into the building, thinking about our issues, talking, networking, and again, another way that we can sort of influence the public debate. We also provide a safe space for discussion and training. Now, that includes quite a few things. So we do lots of private roundtables, which help inform our research. We can make things available to people in the civil service and uh, various political parties, so they've got a safe space to be able to talk about long-term issues facing government. Uh, and we also do lots of learning and development with politicians and with civil servants as well. Obviously, we can't give many details about that publicly, apart from saying that we do it. But again, it's helping them to prepare um, for government and what they might want to get done there. So we've used this T word, or these two T words, 
um, quite a lot already. What is a think tank? Now, there is no wrong answer to this because it's a slightly weird and wonderful world that we're about to learn. Um, if I were to say to you, what is a think tank? What, what would you, how would you define it? There's no wrong answer. Answer, probably better than the one I'm about to show you. Uh, there's another answer here, I think. Say something similar to that. Yeah. This is the Oxford Dictionary definition, because of course I am that sad and lame and sweet. Um, a group of experts who provide advice and ideas on political, social, or economic issues. As you've just said in your definition, and as Hannah was sort of saying as well, we're able to take a little bit of a step back, although it has been quite frantic over the last few years with everything that's going on on Brexit and in government. But we can take that step back, come up with a longer view, think um, in a lot more depth about a lot of the big issues facing the country. Um, and as you can see, a lot of that is about politics and government, but also things that government can influence, such as social or economic issues. And there are also some very specialist think tanks working in particular areas like health and education. And again, we'll come to that in a second. Um, if I were to ask you to name another think tank that isn't the Institute for Government, uh, any names bring to mind? Resolution Foundation, yep. Chatham House. Chatham House. Yep. UK Friends Yep. Constitution Unit. You've named loads that aren't on this slide. <laughs> 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 actually. Um, so this is a slide, I should say, it's adapted from teachertoolkit.co.uk, and I've added a couple of others to it. Um, and it's a very rough, indicative uh, view of sort of which ones are in the centre, which is where we would put ourselves, um, and ones further on the left so you can see there's, there's quite a lot of diversity in there. You've got sort of us thinking about government, Institute for Fiscal Studies thinking about fiscal stuff. Um, you've got Reform, um, who are sort of probably one of the more similar think tanks to what the Institute thinks about. They think about how government works. Um, you've got lots of others that are perhaps more associated with particular political parties, even particular politicians, um, and they sort of range quite widely in the sort of things that they cover. We've got New Local Government Network, for instance, and Localis, which think about local government, um, IPPR, um, Policy Exchange, which cover quite a lot of broad areas, the Work Foundation, which looks at work, surprisingly. Um, so there's, there's quite a, a variety of, of what all of these different things do. And we'll all have slightly different approaches, we'll vary in size. We've got about 50 people here at the Institute, that makes us one of the bigger British think tanks. I did once walk into the Urban Institute in Washington, D.C., which is a relatively well-known, but not one of the biggest American think tanks. And they said to us, oh, so how big are you guys? And we said, oh, about 45, 50, but one of the bigger UK think tanks, you know. And, the, and we said, oh, so how big are you? And they said, well, we own six floors of this building and there are 650 of us. Um, and that's one of the smaller American think tanks. So it gives you an idea of the scale. Um, and we can talk about international think tanks if that's of interest later. Um, so, yes, it's a wide variety of stuff. Um, I mentioned education policy. You've got the Education Policy Institute there in health. You've got the King's Fund, the Nuffield Trust, the Health Foundation, think tanks for everything. Um, there are also quite a lot of organisations which sort of do a lot of the things that think tanks do. So putting out research reports, holding events, trying to influence the public and political debate. Um, but lots of organisations which sort of do that but aren't necessarily think tanks. So just thinking about the bit that I work in, say digital government and data, that kind of thing. You've got the Open Data Institute, who do a lot of policy work, but also build a lot of things. You've got Dot Everyone, who think about 
at what technology means for society. You've got NESTA, the National Endowment for Science, Technology and the Arts, which is huge. They have a few hundred people, and they think a lot and build a lot and go around the world a lot. Um, and also do lots of skills and sort of leadership type training. So it's quite a it's quite a wide field, and it's actually quite difficult to define exactly what a think tank looks like. Um, because you've got us, you've got those organisations that look a bit on the fringe. You can also get public policy jobs as charities and campaigning groups, and of course there's a lot of public policy to be done in government and in political parties as well. So I think that's a very quick introduction to the field. Um, I'm very happy to take questions. Any questions? I mean, we will we'll have a panel discussion uh, in a short while as well. I've answered everything Ooh, about the <laughs> Brilliant question. And I should say as well, this is a very small sample. I think somebody did a recent study and found there were something like 90 to 100 um, organisations in the UK that could be seen as a think tank. I think for us, we are we, we have a niche, and in the sense that's the slightly reductive answer to your question, which is there are relatively few other other organisations on here which think about the issues that we do. So for us, thinking about how government goes about things rather than the finer points of what a welfare policy should look like or what an environment policy should look like. And um, that allows us to carve out a bit of a niche. And um, the IFS, again, that is different. And resolution as well. They kind of have the fields themselves when it comes to immediate reaction to big financial events like the budgets. And um, others, I mean, some the, the health and education think tanks obviously have, have quite a narrow niche as well. But then you've got the really wide ones. So IPPR, um, that was seen as very influential because of particular politicians that it was close to in the 1990s during the Blair government. That was sort of doing a lot of the thinking for the Labour Party. Demos as well at various points. You then got Policy Exchange, which did something similar for David Cameron, Michael Gove, and a lot of people um, sort of coming into government in 2010. And, that's some, and Bright Blue, for instance, has tried to sort of appeal to that party, Conservative Party as well. So there are particular areas of interest which might be niche. But the other ways of developing yourselves are to sort of pitch on to particular politicians or to be seen as representative of a political, uh, particular political point of view. We're saying in Germany they have a slightly different approach to think tanks. They see them as such an integral part of the sort of political thinking system that when you get beyond a certain threshold of votes, you get to set up your own think tank with public money. Um, obviously that's not something which happens in the UK, but it's interesting that they've sort of formalised the role of uh, think tanks in the political process in the I don't have a particularly <laughs> good answer. I think um, other, other European countries in particular, I think, have a much longer tradition of having schools of government as part of their universities and thinking much more deeply about how government actually operates. I think we haven't necessarily had that long-standing historical interest in the UK and probably haven't seen government as a science, not that we see it as a science, it's obviously an art as well, but um, people have tended to focus on party political issues rather than the workings of the state. Um, that's not a particularly great answer, but I think that's, I'll, I'll, I'll think a bit more about that. Um, as you mentioned, what 
things very much on the think tank, I think. Um, so there will be some on this list, and obviously we would all see ourselves as NGOs and civil society organisations as, as well. Um, a lot of think tanks, though not all, are charities. We're a charity, and obviously if you're a charity, you have to be politically neutral, you can't be part of political. Some of these probably aren't charities for that reason. Um, some of these will work with other campaigning groups on particular organisations, on particular issues. We talk quite a lot to a variety of, of other groups. Again, thinking about the stuff that I tend to work on, I speak quite a lot to Transparency International, to the Open Data Institute. Um, so it's, it very much depends, I think. Um, and some of these will sort of have more formal relationships on particular projects. But I think, if I'm being honest as well, we probably don't speak to ourselves and see ourselves as a sector as much as we probably should. Because a lot of the issues that we face are quite similar in terms of bringing in funding, how we're government and government not always giving us the information that we need and yeah we're, we're not as developed as a think tank sector as we probably should be in that. Well thank you Gavin for a fantastic and really wide-ranging talk and we will have some time for some more questions in a minute but for now. Um um, we're going to pass over to a series of talks um, from a range of different people who have done internships um, at the IFG. Um, and so we're going to hear first from Lee Ratton, who's a current intern, um, and he's going to be talking about a day in the life of an intern. Wonderful. Thanks. I'll try and keep it relatively brief so we have more time for the panel discussion. Uh, I'm Lee. I'm one of the five interns here. We've been here for about two months now, I think. Um, and before I get started on what I've been up to, I thought I'd give you a little bit about what, where I, how I ended up at the IFG. So, I'm 22, I'm the youngest member of staff in the building at the moment, um, which is terrifying. Um, no, it's fine. Um, I was born in Barbados, but I spent most of my childhood in South London, and I graduated last year from York in social and political sciences. So this is my first proper job out of uni, as opposed to James, who's 28, done his PhD. Um, so there's a whole range of, in, uh, diverse range of experiences when it comes to the interns here. Um, and yeah, that's how I got started. What I'm working on at the moment is two things. So I'm part of Whitehall Monitor, which is a team uh, that looks at the shape, size, and performance of Whitehall. And we produce this 170-page report once a year. Um, it's coming out in January, so it's quite early stages of the report at the moment. So it's been really great for me to be part of the initial scoping process, because I've had a real role in shaping what the project's going to look like. Um, Freddie, who's working on Performance Tracker, uh, they're quite a lot closer to publication date. Um, he's managing a whole chapter on GP services, and so what you can see is at the IFG, you can do a whole range of work on projects, all the way from the initial scoping, all the way through to writing. And you get that experience in lots of think tanks, especially the smaller ones where there are fewer people around. Um, a friend of mine at Demos has written two reports, um, they're, and they're there for about 12 months. So there's a lot of work that you can get into and you can have a disproportionate effect probably and impact in the uh, think tank sector. This is one of the uh, charts from Whitehall Monitor. Uh, we have a series of explainers on our website that are linked to our reports. This was literally updated by me this morning. Um, it shows freedom of information requests granted in full. As we can see, the Brexit departments are quite untransparent, um, as you'd expect. Um, so you can see the range of sort of work that we're doing. Um, Whitehall Monitor is a, a data-driven project, so there's a lot of charts. 
I didn't have any experience of that coming into it, and I now make charts on a daily basis, um, and it's nothing to be scared of. Um, so that's been really great. The other project that I work on is Team Ministers, which is our project on the IFG's political people. So all of the stuff around Ministers Reflect that uh, Gavin was talking about, uh, stuff is on our Ministers database. We have the most comprehensive database of Ministers, better than the government probably, and uh, other people on payroll. Um, so there's a whole range of work that we do, but Team Ministers also leads on reactive work around leadership elections and elections and those sorts of things. So um, I've been doing a lot of work around that. This chart I update, um, but also work around the leadership contest. So uh, this is ready for 6 p.m. today when the next person gets eliminated. Um, and I've written two leadership explainers, one on the Conservative leadership election and one on the Lib Dem leadership election. Um, and they've had thousands of views, so it's being seen by lots of people, which is great to get your name out, but also it's great because you're having that impact on the debate and the discussion and helping educate people, which is really valuable. Um, if any of you are thinking of doing anything more than being at the IFG, we've just released this report, Becoming Prime Minister. Um, everything you need to know um, from meeting the Queen onwards, so you've got to do the legwork on the first bit. Um, what else we do as interns, we help out with the events. So all those great events that um, Gavin mentioned, uh, we were all in the room and it's a really good opportunity to hear some really amazing speakers. Um, we also do a lot of reactive work, so stuff like covering the Peterborough by-election, this is my chart, but um, James did work on the local election, he's part of the devolution team, and uh, David, who is not here, is part of the Brexit team, has been doing work on the European elections. So the whole range of things that interns get involved in. Uh, two other things that we do, uh, journal summaries. We take it in turns to summarize um, all these journals. Um, and also we do a lot of tweeting. And the reason why I flag these two things at the end is because we think that they're really useful things that you can do when you're preparing for your applications. Not necessarily writing summaries of the journals, but getting out and making sure you're reading a wide range of those sorts of journals. Um, so you get that breadth and depth of opinion and ideas. Um, we're all on Twitter. All our handles are floating around. Um, but um, it's a really good way of interacting with people in the public policy space. Um, you end up finding those interesting and entertaining things. Um, and it's a good way of getting a handle on whatever think tank you're applying for, what work they're doing, what reports are coming out, what might come up in the interview, who knows. Um, so I flag those two now. Um, I won't take any questions now, but feel free to throw things my way after these two lovely people have spoken. So over to you, Sarah. Thank you. Um. Right, so uh, my name's Sarah. Uh, just to start off, a little bit of background about myself. I joined the Institute in October last year as an intern, and at the end of my internship, I was hired to stay on as a researcher. I, since I joined the Institute, I've been working on the outsourcing project that uh, Gavin mentioned. Before I joined the Institute, uh, as you might have detected from my accent, I am that international diversity that Hannah referred to. <laughs> uh, I come from Australia and I spent a few years working in the Australian Civil Service in the Department of the Prime Minister and Cabinet, which is basically an amalgam 
of Number 10 Downing Street and the Cabinet Office. Um, when I joined the Institute, or I, well, when I applied for the internship, I'm pretty sure the only minister, British minister I could name was Theresa May. So if you're not an expert on British politics, don't let that put you off applying if you do have the genuine interest in learning. Um, I would also say, having come from government, that I totally agree with what Hannah mentioned about this being a wonderful place to kind of take a step back and reflect on government and let big ideas percolate through your mind in a way that you just don't get a chance to when you're doing a lot more reactive work, um, in, which you might often find you do in government. Anyway, so I have been asked to talk about what a researcher does. If you come, you know, rel if you're relatively fresh from university, you might have an idea in your mind of you know, some boffins sitting in a room reading journal articles and trawling through data and writing reports. And part of that is true, but it is a much broader job than that. Um, I like to explain the researcher job in that there are two ways of thinking about it. There's two main parts of the job. One is that kind of more traditional research that you might have in your mind, and in the IFG context, that's about thinking about what steps government could take to be more effective. And the other half of the job is about convincing the people who have the power to implement those changes that they should do so. So, uh, the first part of that. Oh, I should actually, um, before I proceed, I should probably say that obviously the what a researcher does pertains to my experience at IFG. I suspect it's broadly similar at most other think tanks, though I suspect a lot of other think tanks your job as a researcher might be more... Um, focused on funding, which we are very fortunate here that our, uh, the majority of our funding uh, is sort of guaranteed and we, we don't need to be approaching funders on a, on a regular basis, though it does form a small part of what we do. Anyway, the first part of the job that I mentioned before, much as you might expect, uh, it's interviewing people, uh, trawling through data, uh, reading government reports, all that kind of thing. I should also mention that researchers play a really important part in generating ideas for new strands of work and in fleshing out what those strands might be. And that it probably is one minor point of difference between what's expected of an intern versus what's expected of a researcher, though I think one really great thing about this place is you are totally given, uh, um, you're given an opportunity commensurate with your enthusiasm and you know, ability. So even if you are a really fresh in turn, if you have a great idea, people will absolutely listen to you and, you know, if it is a good idea, help you get it off the ground. Um, to come to the second part of the job, the influencing impact part that both Hannah and um, Gavin kind of touched on, I guess that's less obvious if you've come from a university context, but it is really important because, you know, you, you might write the most insightful, interesting report, but, you know, if it's just sitting on the shelf gathering dust and no one reads it and acts on it, um, that's obviously not the outcome you want. So to flesh out the influencing side of things a little more, it's really about looking for opportunities to promote our research findings and to add value to debate and encourage government to act and working to establish ourselves in the institute as an expert voice on the topic at hand. To make this a little bit more concrete, um, we do, as Gavin mentioned, keep a close eye on the media, the news, and uh, Twitter, which is one of my favorite things. Um, never thought I would get paid to tweet and uh, refresh Twitter throughout the day. 
Um, but here we are. Um, this is all about looking for opportunities where people are more likely to pay attention to your work and what you have to say about a topic and where you can shed light on a complex issue like Hannah mentioned with prorogation of parliament in the Brexit context. Then the next part of that is when I talk about publicizing your work, that's not just the reports you write. The work I'm talking about is the insights and the findings from reports and how you package that. Yes, sometimes is in reports, but it's also through Twitter threads, comment pieces for our website, writing for external publications. Sometimes it's giving quotes to journalists, giving evidence to parliamentary committees. A lot of our researchers, if you, you know, watch the BBC News channels, you'll see a lot of our researchers pop up on there all the time. Um, thankfully, not me, but um, certainly... Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but certainly, um, you know, plenty of my colleagues, you will see on TV giving, um, you know, shedding light on, on topics in ways that journalists and other, you know, people in the political sphere might not be in a position to. And then the other part, um, the other aspect of influencing that takes up a lot of researchers' time is, I really hate this word, but I couldn't find a better one to kind of encapsulate it all, um, and that would be networking, which if you're someone that is not naturally um, prone to not naturally enthusiastic about networking. I would say it's not a scary thing. It's really about identifying and connecting with the experts in your field of research so that you have access to their expertise um, and hopefully they'll listen to you when you have uh, recommendations or insights to share. So this is things like going to conferences, attending roundtables at other think tanks, uh, going to events, uh, and also, as Gavin mentioned, participating and helping to organize uh, our own events. So, uh, for example, I mentioned I'm working on outsourcing. We're releasing a report over the summer and in the lead up to that to, I guess, build momentum and help establish the institute and ourselves as um, expert voices on the topic. Uh, we've been uh, scheduling a series of events where we bring in experts to discuss you know, topical issues around outsourcing. Uh, the only other thing that I will mention about what a researcher does, specifically at the IFG, and I am really surprised this hasn't come up already, um, but it's lunch. So one of my favorite things, <laughs> one of my favorite things about working here is uh, the IFG puts on uh, free lunch for staff every day, and it's this wonderful arrangement where there's you know one big, two big communal tables, and you go down between 12.30 and 1.30, and you just sit next to whoever has a spare space next to them, whether it's Bronwyn, who's the director, or another intern, or you know any any member of staff, and it's just it's one of my favorite things about this place because you get have the most interesting conversations um, from the banal to the you know deeply insightful, um, and the people working here, you know, are great fun people, but they've also done really interesting things. And as someone that's new to this country, it has been a great way to learn about, you know, British government and what opportunities there are out there and the interesting things people have done. Um, anyway, that's, that's it for me for now. Um, I hope that's shed some light on what a researcher does, specifically at IFG and maybe more broadly in the think tank world. Uh, look forward to taking your questions in the question and answer session. And um, if you'd prefer not to ask a question in front of me, please, in front of everyone, please come, come up to me at the drinks event afterwards. I'd be very happy to chat. Thank you.
Emily. I've been asked to speak about life after IFG internships because I have indeed left. I left uh, four months ago, but having been here for four and a half years. So it's not quite the kind of intern to out in the world uh, that experience that many of our interns have. So I came here as an intern in 2014. Um, uh, and uh, then, like Sarah, was hired as a researcher. Um, and then, actually, my experience, I was then promoted twice. I was senior researcher and then associate director. And then I thought, my goodness me, I should probably uh, actually try working somewhere else because this is a lovely cocoon uh, that you could stay in forever if you're not careful. Um, so, uh, so that just speaks to something that this is a place that I think really unusually really develops its people. And there is real opportunity here. Um, to kind of get promoted and move up in your career and I've now been in a position to move into a really interesting role somewhere else and I've only been working in this field for four years which is uh, pretty great um, but I just thought I would has anyone listed the other places that other interns have gone to I just I just came up with some that from the ones that I've known I don't know if anyone's going to do that so um, obviously so some interns they do their six months um, and that happens to coincide with a recruitment round for researchers, which means that they can apply to be researchers, and some are successful and some aren't, depending on the field. Um, but they go off and do loads of other interesting things. So the obvious place people go is into government. Um, that, you know, you're just better at writing those applications and giving those interviews when you've been here because you've learned everything about government. Um, so loads of people go into the fast stream, got loads of people going to the treasury fast stream um, and the general fast stream. Uh, but also into policy advisor roles and actually people in those roles find they get promoted quite quickly um, because again they've got that inside edge um, or um, into private office uh, which you know is a role where for people who kind of like the like relationship managementy bit uh, more than they like the head down research bit so so people have done that people have gone into local government uh, which actually is probably a, a slightly better place to be at the moment because nothing's happening in Whitehall uh, that's not true but you know I'm just always flying the flag for local gov um, people go into other policy research roles um, in other charities um, so we've got a colleague who has now gone into uh, MIND in their policy and research team, a uh, former, uh, former intern, um, and, and other, so others, like that's quite a common route that people kind of take these policy research experiences and take them to other charities, think tanks, and again, you're, you're very hireable at that point, um, and, and, and people go um, and work in politics. Um, so I, I didn't do any of that, I stayed here because it's lovely, uh, and, uh, but I didn't, um, before I came I didn't know anything about government, uh, much um, and uh, I so I my path here was that I was also a bit older when I came in and turned I'll talk about that in a minute um, but I would say that if you're someone and I imagine actually probably the people who are here are the keynotes who kind of know already the stuff but I, if you're feeling a bit like your knowledge isn't quite you know you've got there's so much to know and I need to know everything I wouldn't sit down and cram a textbook of British politics I think that you know the, the most useful thing to do is to know what this organization is interested in. You come here, that's one way to do it, but you know, all organizations are narcissistic, right? You come into interview, and I've interviewed tons of interns when, when I was working here. You come to interview, and you don't, you want to hear about the other person, but you want to hear them tell you about you. And you know, and show that you understand what the organization cares about and is interested in, and then ideally says what your skills and passions are and how they line up to that. And if you, I think particularly this place, it's, there's so many avenues to know what's going on here. So you can read the reports, but actually, and it's good to know what some of the reports are, particularly if they're in an area that you're already interested or working in, be it Brexit or public services or devolution or you know, any of those things. Um, but actually, I would say reading the blogs 
and the, with the comment pieces, probably a better way of doing that because that's the way of getting kind of what's live, what are people in the building right now, what do they care about? Um, and also, and they're also talking on Twitter all the time. I mean, Sarah's, in my new job, it's amazing. I'm released from Twitter. I just never go on it anymore. Um, but um, it is, a, you know, people in this building really use Twitter and they're talking on it. They're giving their opinions all the time. So you want to know what people here care about? Just look at, they're saying it in public every day. And conversations from inside the office spill out of the office onto Twitter. So it's a really kind of good way, sometimes, you know, sometimes to the better when sometimes to the worse when we're just mocking people on Twitter. Um, so that's one thing I wanted to say. Um, so I came here as a career changer, um, so I'd done Teach First, um, it was the first thing I did uh, back in the old days of Teach First, I don't know when it was just quite new, uh, I'm not to Labour government, so that was in 07, and then our, our someone, uh, one of my old uh, uh, people, uh, academics uh, from my undergrad said, oh, would you like some money to study? And I was like, you know what, that sounds nicer than this, that sounds easier, I'll go and do that. Anyway, so I did that, and I did a PhD, and I, and I finished my PhD, and it was not in government. It was in uh, dementia in 19th century Britain, history of medicine, nothing to do with this. Um, and, but there's a connection now with my new job at the Centre for Aging Better, so I've come full circle. Um, but, um, so yeah, so, you know, finished, finished PhD, like Hannah, was like, no, done with academia. And, you know, career changing is a really, is going to be a factor of everyone's lives. It's really important. None of us are going to do one career for the whole of our life. You know, the whole, you know, do one thing, train, work, retire, that kind of tripartite way of life just isn't the reality, going to be the reality for, for people around our age-ish. I'm probably the oldest person here, but anyway, Gavin's older than me by a couple of months. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, but I might not be, actually. And, you know, and I think the internship here if your career changing, if we do have any career changes in the room, is a really good one because you, and I mean, I'm sure Sarah can speak to this as well, you know, who's doing a bit of a change, is that here you do real work. And if you can do things, you know, if you can write well, and that's something that this space really, really, um, you know, is big on, if you can write well, if you can contribute to meetings, if you can come up with ideas, no one's going to say, no, 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 don't do that, you're the intern. Absolutely not. That would never happen. So if you can do stuff and bring those capabilities into the job, the IG is a, is a really good place to do that. And if, you know, you'll, you will get to do what you can do, um, which, is, um, which is really great. So that's just a, a reason to do it. Um, and yeah, so I guess um, the only other thing I'd say, I'm not talking about what I was, my life after IG internship. If anyone wants to know about the Centre for Aging Better, you can ask me, but I haven't been there for that long. But it's actually, Gavin didn't mention what work centres, I think, on his list. So those are other organisations for people who are interested in this kind of thing. Uh, so Aging Better is a What Work Centre, uh, which are organisations that um, try and build the evidence base in particular areas around what works to support evidence-based policy making in government. Uh, we're not mostly funded by government, some of them are. Um, we're not, we're funded by the big lottery. Um, and so that's also a place which is, you know, we're very, we write reports, uh, but also we uh, kind of develop um, and deliver services in order to test them. So kind of get a bit more, if you're into that kind of like a bit more hands-on, like on the ground type stuff, then um, a What Works Centre is a really good place to go. That's one of the reasons that I went to get a bit more of that kind of experience kind of in my pocket. So um, I would just say that. Anyway, the final thing is that uh, being the expert, that's what you do in this job. Be the experts. Do I need to finish? Can I say my last thing? Yeah. <laughs> Being the expert, we do in this job, and it's super fun, and I'll end there. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> well, thanks, Emily and Sarah, so much for uh, really wide-ranging and fascinating talks. Um, we do have time for a short panel discussion now. 
So we will open the floor to questions. say it's necessarily an advantage or, or disadvantage. Um, I think we're probably, that I suspect, probably looking for a wide range of, of, of disciplines. I'm, I'm, I don't know, maybe Akash, you want to come in at this point, do you? Yeah. No? Well, I'm up next to talk about Okay, <laughs> all right. Um, but, yeah, I mean, you, you guys could get to choose. I think you can talk about your, what, what you yeah. I look beforehand. And, yeah. yeah. Thing. This is slightly a little bit off topic, but I did law and politics at university. And then I, while I was um, working in government, I did some first year economics part time. And it was for government, it was like one of the best decisions I could have made. So if anyone is thinking about, um, you know, going into government or public policy more broadly, I would highly recommend it's not going to be a disadvantage if you haven't done it on an application, but I think as a long-term investment in your own capability, I couldn't recommend highly enough, even if you've never done any economics, just doing some basic macro and micro. And just to give you a sense of the spread as well, we've got people here who did study economics, we've got those who did history, who did politics, who did law, who did English, who did geography. We had somebody who started a PhD in microbiology. We've got all sorts of I haven't got that number to hand. Um, we do. We do have. There, there are a number of people who, who would. Listening to all, all your roots, sorry, sorry, all your roots and everything. I mean, throw. Um, I, I, I do a bit of reading and studying up myself. I mean, if you, um, in terms of like social mobility, social equality, stagnant, um, which is a good, good place to start. I mean, then throw disabilities, non-visible and visible. Another good, interesting sort of statistic, uh, if you have, I think, deaf or partially hearing, you do better than someone with epilepsy or someone in a wheelchair as well. I mean, throw that into the works as well. I mean, then geographical placement as well, as well as, I mean, I mean, ooh, interesting. I just thought I'd throw it in there. And, I mean, as, as Hannah was saying, I think you know, the, the reason that we're doing events like this is to try to, we, we know that we can be a lot more diverse. I think we do have some um, sort of invisible disability. We've got people from all corners of the UK, very different social backgrounds. We know we can be better at it. That's why we're doing things like this. Hi. Can you just take me through how you might start out when you're creating a project? So let's say, for example, the outsourcing project, if that's the correct word. How did that begin and what might you be doing as an intern within that? Thanks. Sure. Well, seeing as I'm out working on outsourcing, I'll take that. So the background to that, the Institute had done some work, I think back around 2012, on public service markets and had produced a couple of different reports and come up with a bit of a framework 
with like, I think it's like 10 or 12 questions that you should ask yourself if you're preparing to, making a decision to outsource a service. And then at the start of 2018, Carillion collapsed. So for those who don't know, Carillion was a major outsourcing firm. And at that point, and this is all before I joined the Institute, and at that point, a decision was made of it's time to revisit this line of work. The, there have been a lot of developments in the outsourcing space, in government since 2012. Let's pick up this work again, look at how things have changed, look at where we can bring new insights, look at where um, you know, there's an opportunity um, to you know, there's an opportunity to build on momentum for change and to identify what that change should be. So a decision was made to pick that up again. I should also say outsourcing falls in a broader context of uh, work on the relationship between the public sector and the private sector. So that's just one, we'll be doing some more thinking around that. So I guess the decision was made because we saw, there was seen to be a need through current events. It was seen that there would be you know, government would be receptive to those messages because there was this need created around some of the problems in the supplier market for outsourcing and because we were already working off a base of expertise that we could pick up and develop on. Does that answer your question? And sorry, about what in, the other thing was about what interns yeah, might do. Oh, okay, so about how you go from having the idea. So I guess, uh, broadly speaking, you might, you work as a team to plan out what questions you want to look at the report, what resources you might want to draw on. You go out and you, you know, do the research and, you know, start writing up the report. And I think interns are, interns are involved in like all those kind of steps. Fleshing out the scope of the report, um, you know, doing the research, doing the interviews, um, you know, going to events and speaking people and I speaking to people and identifying who you might want to talk to, and and in and doing writing and, and producing charts, you know, for the report. Um, so yeah, does that answer your question? Um, just on project generation, very quickly to give another example, the future technology and government project that I'm leading at the moment that you have your own bot slide on, um, that came from not only as having a background and having done lots about digital government, but one of our interns, now a researcher, um, was having a conversation over lunch with our director, and he'd done a master's in AI and started talking about it and basically pitched a project that we're now doing. Um. Hi there. Um, this might be an easier question or a hard question, depending on how you want to answer it. But as an intern, what was the hardest task or project or thing that you've done? I mean, I can, it's, I can, because it's, I think I have one. So I was also the white, well, I was the white hall monitor intern. There's always one, right? One will be chosen um, to be the white hall monitor intern. And someone, I mean, I could, uh, I mean, I bet I had done some quants. I mean, I, like, I knew what Excel was. <laughs> um, uh, but I was handed a database in what's it? What's access? access. I was handed yeah. a database in access, and it was like, ah, oh, someone needs to fix this. Uh, and I was just like, 
are you kidding? And I was kind of like, do they know? Like, did some, did they switch my CV with someone? That's a very like, but it is, I mean, that, I mean, that's an extreme example because mostly you're not doing something that's like technically you have no idea what to do. Most of the things you're doing, you could, even if you've not done it before, you could use some common sense. Um, but it's very much that kind of like, okay, do it. So it's like, okay, first principles, what do we need to do? I know probably someone in this building knows how to use access and I need to find them and get them to teach me how to do it. So then there was a bit of that, looking at stuff on YouTube. So I guess, you know, that's the kind of, that's the, like, that is the extreme example, but it is, again, like an example of how, like, you will be asked to do things you've probably never done before, uh, but that's, that's really good. And now I, um, no, I've forgotten how to use access, but I'm really, <laughs> but I'm really good at Excel now, so. <laughs> yeah, I'm, the database is now fixed, I'm sure you're glad to hear. It's working perfectly. Um, I'm glad I'm not responsible for that. Um, so, yeah, I think with any job, new job you start, there's always stuff that you haven't done before. I think at the IFG there's probably, especially on data-driven projects, there's probably more of that than you might get elsewhere. Um, but there's great data training, everyone's incredibly supportive, it's a very flat sort of hierarchy, if that makes any sense. Um, so I feel like the work you are being given is challenging, and that's a good thing. I don't think that's a bad thing, but there is enough support here that, and hopefully there's enough support at other think tanks as well, to make it broader for a second, that you um, can do, can rise to those challenges, I think. I don't know, James, what's been challenging for you? Uh, challenging for me? Um, I mean, I think part of the, you know, part of doing an internship is you get to learn lots of new skills, and you get to learn how to do things differently. And so I was coming from a background where I you know, spent like a year just kind of writing, and shut away in my room writing a thesis and doing nothing else. And so it's been quite refreshing and nice to face new challenges like learning how to use Excel and um, learning how to make charts and present data in nice ways and so on. And that's kind of using a different part of my brain. And so it's really kind of helped me open up um, some different, uh, or develop some different skills. Um, so I think in the interests of time, um, I think we're going to have to round up the uh, panel discussion there, but we will, um, you know, if you have any further questions and so on afterwards, do email us, do get in touch on Twitter. Um, we're now going to hand over to um, Akash Khan, who's going to, who is a senior fellow here and is going to talk about how we recruit and what we are looking for. Thank you. So, evening, nice to, nice to see you all. Uh, use your mic. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, great to see you, see you all here. I'm sure my colleagues have been doing the, uh, uh, the, the sales pitch job on you, persuading you what a, what a great place this is to work and what a great internship program we have, <laughs> which, is all, which is all absolutely true. Um, I think what, what I'll, I'll quickly do is just um, talk you through how we actually go about recruiting uh, interns and what, what we're looking for and give you some hopefully useful tips. Um, and then we'll have a bit of time for questions um, and also I'll be around afterwards and so will everybody else I think for, for drinks on the landing as I'm sure people have mentioned so can continue the conversation there. Um, so first of all um, I'm sure you've already uh, been made aware we are currently um, open of course for applications the deadline is um, a week today so 10am on the 26th of June. Um, so yeah, you still have a, a bit of time to put in an application um, if you choose to do so. Um, and then following on from that, the other key dates you should be aware of, um, this information will all also be 
most of what I say actually may be already in the very detailed uh, internship information pack, which you'll find on the website if you haven't already seen it. Um, but so yeah, the other key dates to be aware of is that we'll be interviewing uh, candidates between the 10th and 12th of July. Uh, we do inter interviews um, usually in person, but we can also do them via Skype or, or, or by telephone. I think we interviewed Sarah when she was uh, still in Australia. Yeah, um, sometime late in the evening. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we can be flexible about that. But yeah, those are those are the dates: tenth and tenth to twelfth of July. Um, and then we are looking for people to start um, in October. Um, so we'd be looking to we'd, we'd be sort of confirming appointments and so on, some point in July. But the start point would be um, ideally early October. Um, and in terms of what we're looking for, so there's some sort of um, prerequisites um, so obviously availability would have to be available from October for um, up to six months uh, we'll be we, we'd be making appointments usually for a six month placement uh, with a three month probation period so you would have to have that availability they are uh, full-time positions as well so they're not they're not the type of internships you can do um, alongside alongside studying usually um, occasionally we've taken on people on a sort of 80% four days a week basis if you're say finishing off a dissertation or something and, and can fit it around but that's the kind of minimum um, availability so yeah they're not part-time roles um, you do have to have uh, the right to work in the UK we can't unfortunately um, sponsor visas um, for for interns so um, there is a slight Brexit question hanging over people with EU passports. Um, not, not entirely sure what uh, might happen, um, obviously, in, in, on that front, but we'll, we'll, we'll assume that, you know, um, that will be resolved. Maybe that's very foolish and naive. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, yeah, we, do, we, we, we would require people who, who, who can, can work here. And then um, in terms of uh, academic um, eligibility, we look for a minimum 2-1 degree. Um, so if, if, if obviously if you've, if you've graduated on a uh, UK system, that's GPA of 3.2 if, if, if anyone's done their undergrad in the US. And to go back to the question that was asked a few minutes ago, um, we don't mind what subject that's in whatsoever. Um, so yeah, and we do, um, and we welcome people from, from, from a variety of backgrounds. Um, so yeah, that's that's um, the, the key thing is, is, is just the overall um, grade. So if you can tick all those sort of yes no questions and decide to apply, well then we get into the actual process. So I'm not sure if how many of you have, have, have looked already. Some of you might have already started applications, possibly. Um, others might be not uh, not aware of, of how we do it. Um, so it's explained in here, of course, as I say, but. We use um, an online system. It's it's through a, a separate website called. Has this all been covered already? No. Okay. So the link is obviously there on our website to an external website which is called Applied. Uh, it's a sort of dedicated recruitment um, recruitment portal platform um, that actually quite a lot of think tanks and government departments use. So you may come across it with other jobs, or you may have already done so. Um, it's, Quite, quite a nice tool, I think, both for applicants and, and also from our side. Um, and what it, what it facilitates is, um, well, the, the, the process is, is designed to be run in a, 
in a in as fair and, and unbiased way as, as possible. So it's all done name blind, for example, and and um, designed to be designed to be um, easy for for applicants. So the stages of the process. First of all, um, there is a, a multiple choice test. Um, there are 20 questions. You have half an hour to complete them. Uh, you can only do it once. Obviously, by that point of, of doing the test, you'll have registered with your, your name and, and uh, email address and contact details prior to that. Um, so obviously, don't click start until you're, you're ready to go. You've got a good place, good internet connection. Uh, have a calculator and some scrap paper to hand uh, uh, as well, because the test does include some numerical reasoning questions, quite a few, in fact. Um, I think it's eight out of 20 are maths-based. Um, there's also some uh, verbal and logical reasoning questions and some questions where you're presented with a, a chart and ask some questions about what, uh, what conclusions, what logical conclusions you could, you could draw from that. Um, yeah, and then the verbal reasoning ones are things like selecting the best, um, the best word to complete a sentence given the, the context or the argument being made. It's those kind of questions that um, that, that you may have come across in, in, in other similar sort of graduate recruitment tests. Um, we don't have any practice questions available for you to try, I'm afraid. Um, I think that's something we'll, we'll try and do in the future. But I think the main thing, I mean, I've given you a sense of the kind of questions. Um, those of you maybe who haven't done much maths recently, I think the main thing I'd advise is just brush up on your, um, on, on your sort of, I suppose it's sort of GCSE level math stuff really, but percentages and probability, a bit of geometry and um, uh, fractions and things like that. But under the time pressure, it's useful to familiarize with the, the basic techniques. <laughs> um, so that's the first part. Um, and then we use that basically as a, as, a, as a filter for who gets through to the next stage. Um, and well, I, I, the, the pass mark is usually around 15 out of 20, I can, I can tell you that. Um, depends exactly on the distribution. Um, but the next stage of it then is four short answer questions that, um, that we ask you to complete, and everybody would complete that as well as doing the test. Isn't, you do that all in one go, basically, before you get told, before, before the, the sort of filter is applied. Um, so first of all, there's just a simple question about your education, um, and I've talked a bit about that. Second question about your experience. Um, these are, of course, positions for sort of you know, early, early career roles. So we don't expect lots of professional experience. Um, we are interested in relevant volunteering or NGO, or, or yeah, volunteering with, with NGOs or university societies or, or other, relevant, um, other relevant things you've done um, that potentially illustrate how you might have picked up some relevant skills, ideally. Um, but those are not the key things. And the two key questions that really determine who gets shortlisted and who gets invited in for interview. First of all, there's a question about your motivation. Why do you want to uh, work with us? What is it particularly about the Institute that interests you, attracts you? Um, where do we potentially, or where does an internship with us potentially fit into your, your career plans? We don't expect a kind of very uh, precise idea of exactly where you're going to be necessarily, but some sense of, of, of where you're going and how we might uh, form a part of that, I think, is, is helpful. Um, so that's the first question. And then there's a question about 
uh, about your suitability. So why do you think you'd be a good fit for the, fit for the role? And here, of course, take a look at the, the job spec, um, which you'll find. Um, I mean, what we emphasize and what I, would, what I would say now is we're looking for people with strong um, analytical, organizational, and communication skills. So these are research positions, yes, so the absolutely the analytical side is important, but they're not academic posts. Uh, I mean, James talked a bit about the transition from doing a PhD to um, doing some excellent charts, I must say, over, over the last few weeks. Um, so, so the analytical side is important, but yeah, there's an organizational element. You might be helping to um, organize events or you know, just drive a project forward. You'll be part of a team. Um, you know, you're not sitting in the library just doing research, obviously. So, so, so that side of it is important. And then, yeah, communication. There's a lot of, um, there's a lot of communication within teams, uh, within project teams, but then more generally among researchers. We do presentations of our, of our work. Um, so that side of the role is, is, is important too. Um, and then, so yeah, I mean, those, you, you, did I say that already? Yeah, so they're, they're short, short answers, 250 words, so it's hard to get all of that in, I know, <laughs> but take a bit of time to really think through the, the key points you want to get across to tick off yeah, some of those things I just indicated. And uh, sounds obvious, uh, check the spelling, check the grammar, check the punctuation, check it again, check it again. I think literally every time I've run the process, um, there's at least one applicant who's obviously done a bit of a quick copy and paste job and has accidentally talked about why they'd love to work at the Institute for Fiscal Studies or the Institute <laughs> for Economic Affairs or the Civil Service. And you can imagine what happens to those applications. <laughs> so yeah, pay attention <laughs> to detail. Um, so that's the written application, the online application process. Um, if you're then invited in for interview, um, obviously I can't tell you exactly what you'll be, you'll be asked and so on, but um, in terms of the format, you'll be, uh, well, you'll be informed probably about a week or so before interview usually, or certainly a few days, and you'll be asked to uh, prepare something to discuss at interview, and, and obviously we'll give you a sort of spe specific task at that point. It's not like a presentation or anything, but it's just uh, a chance for you to think through something and, and come and have a sort of informed conversation with us. Um, and yeah, preparation for that is, is definitely a, a key part of, of being successful. So make sure you set aside time to do that. And then um, there are some sort of standard kind of interview questions, sort of a few competency questions that ask you to talk about, you know, examples from your past experience of, of when you've displayed certain certain skills or competencies and possibly another so some sort of thematic questions about some aspect of government. Um, you might also be in, asked to interpret another uh, chart or some data, big on charts and data, <laughs> but it won't be any kind of complex mathematical sort of questions or anything like that. It'll just be um, that you can read the chart and, and deduce some interesting things from it. So yeah, that's the process. And the overall general advice I'd give uh, for, or generally, but particularly when you get to interview stage, read up, of course, on what we do, you know, what our sort of active areas of work now. Think about what particularly interests you, what you could add. Um, as I said, prepare well for that task. If you can, practice some competency questions. There's lots of examples of those online. Think through your past experience and sort of examples of what you've done that give a good account of yourself and, and 
the way you work. Um, and uh, think about what questions you'd like to ask us um, at the end of the interview. So uh, I think that's all for me. Uh, good luck to any of you who apply here or anywhere else. And I've got time for a few questions now, as mentioned. Brilliant. Well, thank you, Akash. Do you have a, a disability access scheme? Also, you're saying about questions and all that. Uh, is there a re a, can you request reasonable adjustments to be made as well? Yeah, if you contact us before um, before starting the application, then yeah. and, and explain your circumstances, then yeah, we may re we, we can make reasonable adjustments in terms of the time allocated for the test, and also obviously if you were to come in for interview and, and, and that side of it as well. Um, in, we don't have a specific scheme. No, no, in, I'm just sort of in terms of pre-employment law and disability law, well, DD and, and the Quality Act and Public Duty quite along those lines, I mean, even prior to employment, there are certain duties. It's just, I'm just inquiring, but many thanks, Brill. Okay. I mean, you might, so... I mean, if you want to talk about it afterwards, I'd be very happy to. And Pauline, who's our uh, HR director, uh, is, is okay, standing there. Yeah. Um, in, the, in our application, would you expect us, for example, to identify the kind of team or project we'd like to work on more specifically? Or would you like us to talk generally about how we fit into institute there's, I wouldn't say there's one you know one correct way to do it I mean when it comes to allocation of, of interns who you know who, who we appoint to projects um, we try to match people where possible with their interests and you know relevant skills and, and, and any experience as well but um, we are really looking for um, you know people with a general interest in what we do and in government who we could imagine um, slotting in where there is a need, um, you know, uh, in terms of a project that are active at that point and need some extra resource. So, um, sure, yeah, I mean, if, 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 if there are particular areas um, you're keen on and, you know, have a sort of uh, a, a, a desire to, to, to explain why and, and why you think we'd be a good fit for that, then sure, that's not going to count against you. But equally, you know, if, if there's a, a range of different areas that you'd be equally interested in, that's fine as well. Thank you. Um, this is just a question about the application. Can you log out and log back in again during the week? Y yeah, you can, yeah. I mean, for obviously the, the test is 30 minutes, timer starts ticking. But the rest of it, sure, yeah. That's behind you. <laughs> Hi, um, you Hi. mentioned, or a couple of you have mentioned that interns have been hired afterwards for longer term positions. Is that a regular thing or is it just like great, really great interns that managed to get 
I mean, no, full-time positions afterwards. Sure. I mean, there's no there's no automatic progression. The intern scheme is separate, uh, and then usually every year, um, sometimes more than once a year, we will be recruiting for researchers. Um, but there's no kind of fixed schedule to that, and then those are always um, open competitions, um, and interns are obviously welcome and, and often encouraged to apply, and yes, in practice, having worked here as an intern for three or six months um, is quite useful <laughs> experience <laughs> if you're applying to become a researcher, because as I'm sure the guys have been, have been telling you, you are effectively a, a junior researcher as an intern anyway, so um, it's, it's very good preparation for that, and yes, I mean, the come to um, the drinks afterwards, there'll probably be, I don't know how many of them will come, but I think there's probably half a dozen members of the research team who, Sarah's done, who started as, as interns. Um, so yeah, but there's no, there's no, there's definitely no guarantee um, or kind of automatic progression, but in practice it happens quite often. And um, the other thing I'd say is, um, I think we always do try to um, help interns with, um, other, you know, their, their next step, whether it's here or somewhere else. Um, and, you know, people, we've got lots of people here with experience in government, for example, or um, experience of, of, you know, other research organizations and so on. And, and we really do try to, to help ensure that people go on from here to, to, to succeed somewhere else. And we have a fantastic network, actually, of, of alumni who, who are doing, yeah, lots of, lots of great things across Westminster wide tour, wider policy world, academia, all over the place. I think we've got time for one final question. There's a gentleman here. Hi there. Um, I wonder if you can share with us uh, some numbers in terms of how many applicants per round get through to, let's say, the shortlist, and how many shortlisters get through to the actual internship. Yeah, okay. I don't see why not. <laughs> um, so we do get a lot of applications, um, often in the region of 250 to 300, sometimes more than 300. Um, and well, we are this time we will be looking to appoint at least three um, people from that. So that gives you a sense of, of, of the ratio. Um, and we would, yeah, so, 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 so in terms of shortlist, we'd be probably interviewing about nine people. We normally do a sort of three to one ratio. The numbers might vary a bit. We'll be having conversations about exactly the resource needs. But it's that kind of scale, yeah. Microphones. Um, so what happens is we will go through all the applications that, that come in. There'll be a cutoff point in relation to the test, the the, um, the time test that Akash mentioned, and then everybody above that cutoff point will be seen. Their answers will be seen by at least three people here. So the applications are chopped up. We can't associate, for example, your academic record with your answers to any other question or your work experience. So each person who reviews applications will be handed or 
they do it online, they get a number of suitability questions, motivation questions, academic and work experience to look at, but they can't match them up. So they will mark them indivi individually, and then the three marks from the three different markers will be combined to give an average. And at that point, we then start looking at the, the top, maybe 50, I suppose, we start looking at at that point, and then work, work our way down to the final interviewees. Yeah, I mean, from your perspective, actually, I suppose it's worth that. That's yeah, it's useful to give that overview. Um, one specific thing it means for you is, as you're answering the different questions, because the same person won't see all of them. If this is mentioned in here anyway, but I might as well emphasize it. Don't do things like as discussed above, or you know, refer as as yeah, whatever as as mentioned in my previous question, because the person seeing it won't have access to that to answer each question as a separate chunk. And the, the logic of that, by the way, is to go back to what I was saying about the, the, the format of the assessment process, it's to eliminate any bias, so every bit of it is assessed um, on its own merits as an answer to that question. So that's, that's why it's, it runs that way. Brilliant, well, um, I think there are drinks waiting for us outside, um, so if you do have any further questions, please do follow up with any one of us who will be um, out there. Um, just a couple of points before we close. Um, there is, on, on your chair, there was a form um, for signing up to our newsletter. We would love to stay in touch with you, so please do fill that out. You can also find that on the website. Um, and also, in your confirmation e email, you should have received a uh, diversity form. We'd really appreciate it if you could fill that out so that we know who we're reaching um, with these events. Um, so, uh, well, thank you all for coming, and thank you to our brilliant uh, panel members.